From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCoward, here today in Florham Park, New Jersey, on this week's edition, How to Make It in Sustainability, wisdom from sustainability experts, both young and old, and Cargill, Pepsi, General Mills, and others grow a supply chain collaboration for row crops. We're reaping what we sow this week on 350. It's September 9th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. I'm in New Jersey, as I said, and uh, my co-host, uh, Lauren Hepler, senior writer, is in Oakland, California. Hi, Lauren. Hey there. How's it going? What exactly are you doing in Florham Park, New Jersey? Well, you know, do you do I even have to explain? Uh, no, this is the uh, U.S. Uh, North American headquarters for BASF, the world's largest chemical company, and BASF is hosting um, one of the three meetings that we're having this month of our Green Biz Executive Network. As people, longtime listeners know, that's our membership group of sustainability executives from big companies that we bring together several times a year, face to face, for uh, to learn from one another and uh, just share. Uh, challenges and opportunities. Very cool. Um, so what what's top of mind there? What's the talk of the town in terms of issues that sustainability execs are dealing with right now? The talk of Florham Park, New Jersey uh, is uh, we've been talking a lot about collaboration and partnerships and uh, sort of the general desire uh, of, of companies. Um, and we've got about 15 companies in the room, 20 or, some, or so, all big ones, um, you know, to, to find ways to work together more to solve some of the problems that each of them are trying to solve uh, individually. And this is something that's been going on for quite a while, these kinds of things. But I guess there's a, a need to step things up. Um, and, and also some of the challenges, you know, there, there's a uh, a lot of uh, BASF, for example, is uh, is at the top of uh, supply chains. You know, they provide the raw materials to uh, a lot of manufacturers to make almost everything. In fact, um, you know, quick side note: we went uh, as a group to the Yankees game uh, last night. Um, Yankees played the the Toronto Blue Jays uh, and oh, and won. Uh, but uh, the reason that we were there in part was because uh, Yankee Stadium is a is a big partner of BASF. And uh, they were showing, you know, where their products are in the stadium, which is just about everywhere, from you know underground and the, the irrigation systems to actually some aspects of the of the the grass itself to the to um, almost every surface and material throughout the stadium. So it's just kind of interesting uh, way to to you know get a sense of the breadth of their products and services, and also of course to see a ball game. So you know. Back to the partnership thing. That's that's a one of the challenges is how do they partner and how do other companies partner with one another in ways that are, are mutually beneficial, that move the needle faster, that uh, you know allow each of them to get some kind of value in terms of of cutting costs or reduce or growing revenue or reducing impacts. Uh, it's really interesting, and I think this is just sort of speaks to how far this field has come that. Uh, I think most companies have done what they can do alone, at least certainly the big companies, and they're now trying to, to understand how do we do more faster, and, and the answer in part is by collaboration. Well, stepping up your game was also part of several post-Labor Day pieces we had this week, so let's jump right into the week in review.
So as we jumped back into things after the long weekend, our assistant editor, Emma Kampfer, caught up with some of our recent Green Biz 30 Under 30 honorees. That's young executives from places like Annie's, the California Food Company, uh, Adobe, Landa Lakes, CA Technologies, uh, as well as some different organizations like the City of Orlando and CDP. And Emma asked them a little bit about their career success secrets. So um, lots of interesting advice out there. Some of it was around education and sort of prioritizing those tangible skills, like maybe learn a little bit of coding for, for websites since we're hearing more about online reporting for sustainability. But also so Jill Leonard's from CA Technologies um, gave some advice. I don't know if I would have been able to heat it back when <laughs> I was an undergrad, but she said, take a class in something like environmental chemistry so you understand the science that you're dealing with. Oh my God, that's so important. I mean, I, I in fact, rue the fact that I don't uh, didn't take a, you know, biology, chemistry, some of those hard sciences that I've been playing catch up with for the last well forty years. Learning how to you know get that stuff after the fact is a lot harder than than learning that early on. You know these just so you understand these people these thirty under thirty um, they're doing real work in real companies. Uh, one of them is right here in Florham Park, New Jersey at BASF Printer Chatterjee, uh, who I sat next to uh, just uh, today and. Uh, his, is you know doing real work when, in the supply chains with innovation and and really you know understanding customers' needs and and figuring out what are the opportunities to uh, create new products and new molecules and hydro hydrocarbons and working with the chemists here at this chemical company uh, to or chemistry company to uh, innovate and and it's really exciting that uh, you know these uh, how fast some of these people can rise uh, and and the, the article that Emma put together is has some great little tidbits of uh, you know just what to you know how do, how do you move farther faster within your organization or for that matter maybe even how you get a job in sustainability in sustainable business in the first place Mm-hmm. And you'll hear more about this in the months to come. But we are already starting to think about our Green Biz 30 Under 30 list for next year. So feel free to shoot us any leads at editor at greenbiz.com. But in the meantime, on the other end of the spectrum, we had the conclusion of a great three-part series from our editor-at-large, Bob Langert, formerly the Vice President of Sustainability for McDonald's, and his piece that ran this week was titled A Sustainability Leader's Lessons of a Lifetime. Yeah, I mean, this is just a, such a great series. Bob was you know, 30 years at McDonald's running sustainability there and, and really just uh, edit, now an editor-at-large and just one of the smartest and most articulate and forthcoming people out there. And what was one of the things that was interesting about these, uh, these lessons, I guess there were uh, 11 of them, not quite a, a dozen, um, is uh, not only were they sort of right on, and, and a lot of people have been talking about them here at the Green Biz Executive Network meeting here this week, um, is that they're actually just, you know, you could substitute um, uh, sustainability for almost any field. They're just really great leadership uh, uh, nuggets in the, first, in the first place around, you know, loving feedback, speaking your mind, um, you know, having a little bit of Steve Jobs in you and... Uh, in determination and vision and not capitulating, don't, not playing it safe, um, you know, experience things firsthand. He says, go there, see it, smell it. And, you know, he rafted down the Amazon with Greenpeace to really understand where soy was destroying the rainforest and when McDonald's was getting attacked by that activist group. Um, and so, you know, he, you know, act as if everything you're going to do is going to show up in the New York Times 
um, you know, uh, spend a third of your time on developing people. Um, uh, so this is just a really great series. And by the way, parts one and two were pretty good too. There's just, uh, I, I, we love it when he offers things uh, up, uh, some of his great wisdom. And uh, it's clear from the comments, it's clear from uh, both on the website and from what we've been hearing from the companies uh, directly this week here in, in New Jersey, he really touched a nerve. So I really strongly encourage you to check out not just this week's article, but parts one and two, which have links to it in uh, the piece today, or the piece this week. Yes, we will indeed link to those in the notes from this week's episode. And I also wanted to point out a great piece. We had our recurring power player column by David Crane, who's formerly the chief executive at NRG Energy and now with Pegasus Capital Advisors. He took a look this week at setting corporate carbon goals and meaning it. So sure, we it feels like every day there are companies say, stepping up saying they want to do their part to fight global warming. Um, and he looked a little bit at this group that he called the recalcitrants uh, that continue to impede progress at a time when climate change and the urgency around those issues uh, is getting much more pronounced. So an interesting look. Uh, obviously, <laughs> David has, has seen a little bit of both sides of this issue. Yeah, I mean, he's sort of one of the first people in the energy business to actually start invoking the word greenwash. I mean, usually that's, that's said by activists and, and critics in general. And he's focused on, and this is actually part two of a, of a sort of a two-part series. The first piece a, a week or so ago was specifically about Exxon and the, and the uh, advertisements they were running during the Olympics about their carbon commitment. I don't even know what. And he took that on saying that uh, eh, maybe not so much. And, uh, but now he's sort of looking at you know, what he calls greenwashing 2.0. And it has to do with a lot of the climate goals or carbon goals that companies are making. And you know, he's saying, and there's all definitely some, something, some truth there, that, um, uh, that at the same time, we need corporations to adopt big, hairy, audacious carbon goals and want companies to be thinking disruptively, um, not just, you know, incremental improvements, uh, they need to do that very carefully in terms of how they message that. And they may need to make sure that, uh, to coin a phrase, they don't get too far ahead of their skis. Yes. And David also talks a little bit about the myriad third party groups that have formed um, for the explicit purpose of sort of uh, elevating or vetting corporate goals. One of the maybe the biggest is We Mean Business, which is a, a coalition that was very active around the Paris climate talks, where more than a thousand sustainability commitments have been undertaken by 400 plus companies. Um, so that would be one example. World Resources Institute is also um, working a lot on this area of science-based goals. So not just setting a goal for the sake of setting a goal, but tying it to very specific environmental outcomes. So there's a lot going on in this field. And I think it's definitely prescient for David to point out that there are maybe more outlets for corporations to engage in public greenwashing than before, but there's also a lot of people trying to push the field in a positive direction. Right, and you mentioned Paris, and that brings up another piece that we ran this week from our good friend in London, James Murray, the uh, editor of Business Green, about, uh, it's called Why the Paris Agreement Ratification Bodes Ill for Oil. It's interesting to take a look at this, why, you know, in a, in a world where you know, oil is at you know, sort of persistently low prices. Uh, why he thinks that, that this is uh, what's going on in Paris and the world's uh, countries and, and companies is, uh, you know, sort of beginning the end for the oil industry. Definitely. And it, it was interesting in James' piece, he talks a lot about 
um, this idea of sending uh, a message through the Paris Agreement, which I, I mean, I was kind of surprised. I logged on to the UNFCCC's website a couple weeks ago. How few companies have, or how few countries rather, have actually ratified the agreement at this point. So interesting to see the U.S. and China stepping up now. You know, uh, nine months after the actual event, um, but. As James points out, sort of the bigger issue here is that the private sector was framing the climate talks in Paris last year as the potential for a big market signal. Where should we be putting our money long term? Um, so now that we are seeing some of these heavy hitters in international politics jump on board, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves, especially because we do have the next UN climate summit, COP22, coming up in Marrakesh in Morocco in November. And, and keep in mind that market signals are only that signals that ultimately these markets need to develop uh, for uh, for renewables, for everything else. And, and, and of course, they are developing. But the question is, will it be at the scale, scope and speed that we need to decarbonize the economies of the world fast enough to achieve the somewhat ambitious and some people would say not ambitious enough goals that were um, set forth in Paris? Mike Howard, a longtime contributor, senior writer at GreenBiz, wrote a piece this week. It's a little bit of a swan song, it turns out, uh, and, and perhaps symbolic in its title, which is how to make it in corporate sustainability. Mike just took a job um, with the uh, PR giant uh, Edelman to work on their su sustainability practice there and uh, you know corporate messaging and a lot of other things, and I think it's a great, great opportunity for him and uh, probably won't be seeing him as often on the pages uh, of green biz, but he wrote a piece called how to make it in corporate sustainability. He did. And I, I thought the, the lessons he included, there are five of them. Um, we're good. They're prescient. They would apply across industries. And some of them may be things um, you've, you've sort of heard inklings about before. Never stop learning. Mike uh, was actually in grad school for a lot of the time he was writing for us, which was fun to see him balance. But also things like cultivating a global perspective. He spent some time in Kenya and wrote some great pieces about sort of the on the ground realities of e-waste and some of these issues that we often hear about from afar. Um, so I thought that was that was good to add. And the, the last one he said that uh, that really resonated with me was this idea of developing a niche, but also generalizing. So you want to know what's going on in the space sort of across the board, but then developing one or two things that you really know a lot about is also a pretty key skill to be able to work your way up the ladder. Well, we asked Mike to say a few words uh, about uh, what he wrote, and uh, here's what he had to say. This is a topic that uh, often doesn't get t touched on at sustainability conferences. I, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's an elephant in the room that established corporate sustainability professionals might not 
even realize is a problem or if they do it's something that they don't want to recognize because as a fudging profession uh, you know even even those that have quote unquote made it in the field might not feel that they're secure in their positions at their companies and they're still trying to make the case for why their job should exist of course there are a lot of young people that have made it you know green biz is 30 under 30 list is a good example of, of some millennials and others who have you know done a good job of breaking into the field but behind each of those individuals are countless more that have been clamoring to make a career at other triple bottom line and uh, in my position as a, as a freelance writer I've been in kind of an interesting spot because even though I've had a unique access to some of the top dogs in the field you know I've interviewed more corporate sustainability professionals than I can count, uh, CSOs, city sustainability leaders. I interviewed Dennis Hayes, the founder of Earth Day, and even one time I randomly interviewed James Cameron in Washington, D.C. when I was living there. And the real, the real other side of the story that I've seen uh, has been talking to other people, you know, on people like me, uh, millennials that have been trying to make it. My hope for this article is that somebody that's looking to find their way can see, you know, how someone else did it. I'm not by no means think that I've made it because I still have a long way to go, but at least I can say that I've finally found a, a role that that fits my skill set that I think will allow me to have a a profound impact on the world and also pay my bills. And uh, so, you know, just diving into the, some of the lessons that I learned, I, I, in the story I outlined five lessons. Lesson number one is trying to develop a niche, but also to generalize. You know, regardless of whether you're looking in the private, public, or nonprofit sectors, uh, the career in sustainability increasingly requires someone to simultaneously cultivate a specialization um, and also general knowledge, you know, so whether you're, you know, someone like me who is trying to specialize as a communicator, you know, that doesn't mean that I can not focus on developing other areas of knowledge. I'm going to need to still acquire a solid understanding of business, uh, you know, environmental policy, all those things. And, um, you know, if you're an engineer, you should probably, while you're developing those skills that will make you succeed as an engineer, it would also be good to acquire, you know, solid communication skills. I touched base with Aaron Cook, uh, sustainability director at San Francisco International Airport, just to see, you know, what her, her advice was as someone who's been in the field for, you know, more than a decade. And uh, she told me that it was similar back back about 15 years ago when she first entered the workforce. She was she was uh, kind of struggling to find that sustainability role that she really wanted. And, uh, you know, even then there were there were no entry level positions for what she was trying to find. And so she kind of focused on you know, developing these skills. She said that she took a more generalized approach um, was rather than specialization per se. But, you know, along that, uh, you know, she's had a very strong career so far. So, so, you know, maybe you can just focus on your general skills more than, than uh, completely specializing, according to her. And the, the moral of that story is to make corporate sustainability, find a niche and master it while striving to acquire general sustainability knowledge. And lesson number two. And this is something that I think applies to any field, not just sustainability, but I say especially in sustainability. It's never stop learning. Uh, as a never-growing field, not, you know, not even the most accomplished CSO has ever knows everything about everything. And and uh, you know, I'm someone who is always reading, you know, whether it's books, newspapers, magazines. And I think that you really have to have that that thirst for knowledge and to constantly learn and 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 open your mind to new ideas. And I think that's something that I see when I interview uh, people who have made it in sustainability. They, they, they have that, that ever long drive to learn. 
And then I kind of dabble in, you know, what should you study in formal education? Uh, there's a longstanding debate. I, I know there's been countless articles in Green Biz alone about this. Uh, if it's worth it to pursue a degree in sustainability or, you know, green MBA. I'm not, I don't know. I, that's, that's basically how I, what I conclude is I'm not sure yet. Uh, I don't think that it will hurt you. Uh, I know there are some, some articles I've read out there that are arguing that if you're going to get an MBA, get a general MBA, not a sustainability MBA, but I don't think there's enough data out there really to say one way or the other what's best. But what I do think is important is if you're going to go to graduate school, only do it if you know exactly what you want to do. And kind of touching back on the previous point about cultivating you know, a, a solid skill focusing on something because that's what grad school is about grad school is about narrowing down your knowledge and and really becoming i mean a master that's why they call it a master's degree so the third challenge is something that's really near and dear to my heart and sorry lesson not challenge cultivating a global perspective uh, before i even knew what corporate sustainability was i kind of had this desire to just get away from everything to break out of my bubble and go see the world and experience it firsthand and growing up i didn't travel a lot my family didn't have a lot of money to do that and when i graduated from college I, you know, I found a job right out of college at a communications firm. It was a great job at the you know, height of the great, great recession. I was lucky to have it, but something just didn't feel right. I just knew that I couldn't stay where I was. I needed to get out of my comfort zone. And you know, if I was going to make a difference in the world, I really needed to experience it outside of, of the, the sheltered world that I had led so far. And so in 2010, I quit my job, uh, found a volunteer program called World Teach, which is based out of Harvard University and uh, moved to Bogota, Colombia for uh, a whole year where I spent uh, teaching English in a poor neighborhood in the southern areas of the city, which tend to be not quite slums, but definitely not the not the not the the best areas of town. And uh, that really opened my eyes. Uh, I saw living in Bogota, I saw the, the opposite of urban sustainability and resilience. This is a city that was designed for a fraction of that population. You know, the city has been sw swollen over the years because of uh, the violence in the countryside and other economic drivers. Although it's interesting, the northern parts of the city are pretty, very similar to something you might find somewhere in the west. A big part of the city is shanty towns, uh, not quite on the scale that I'd later see in Africa, in Kenya specifically, but definitely issues with crowding, traffic, air quality, all that. And uh, one of the one of the great solutions I saw there was this was the system called Transmillennial, which many people may have heard of because it's been kind of held up as a great example of what cities can do to improve transportation without having to invest in a in a subway system. Essentially, it's a rapid bus system that lets people hop on at different air different stops and kind of like a subway. And they've dedicated bus lanes so you can get across town much quicker than you can in the regular buses. The same time uh, I was in Colombia, so I had a couple of uh, weeks off in the summer to travel, and I made a trip down to Panama. Well, I was actually up to Panama from where I was, and I visited a island chain called San Blas, which is right off the coast of Panama. And uh, I visited an island, uh, a specific island that had a village. They're called the Kuna. Uh, they're an indigenous group that's been there pretty much since before, well before Columbus arrived. And uh, it was it was really a remarkable experience. These people were living on islands the size of a football field. And uh, what was really heartbreaking was knowing that, uh, especially from what I've what I'd read and what I was hearing, was that these islands were going to be underwater in the next, uh, you know, probably less than 50 years, I'd say in the next 10 to 20 even. Rising sea levels are literally going to swallow these islands up. And just seeing these impacts of climate change firsthand, 
it's one of those things that really awakens you. It's one thing to read about it, which most of us do, uh, but seeing a whole people that survived Christopher Columbus won't survive climate change. Something that really makes this whole issue come alive and makes you want to do something about it. I've had a lot of opportunities to travel. I could go on and on. Uh, as as a writer for Green Biz, I've had an opportunity to travel uh, to a couple of different places. Um, once was a trip uh, two years ago. I went to the Mathari slums in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, where I saw some poverty there that just was mind-boggling. Um, a lot of these people actually... Uh, they were driven there from an extreme weather event in the form of extreme drought. A lot of them are farmers that their lands just no longer could grow anything because they're, they've been dealing with a mega drought for years. And so they've all, you know, like what this happens in a lot of countries where they all end up heading to the, the capitals and the major cities where there's at least, you know, some more economic opportunities. And uh, these slums were, as far as the eye could see, uh, you know, trash three stories high. There's actually no governance services there. The government, the central government really didn't seem to give a crap about these people living out here. And but I, again, I, I was great seeing local Kenyans trying to solve their own problems through innovation. I uh, visited a place called iHub, which houses uh, a bunch of uh, tech startups uh, that are Kenyan-based, that are actually started by Kenyans. And uh, they're all working on different problems uh, related to social sustainability and, and uh, politics, things like that. One of the companies that you may have heard of that made headlines uh, during the Haiti earthquake is Ushahidi, which is a... They develop an open source software program that it's really useful to for mapping um, and coordinating through digital technology. Uh, it was actually used during the Haiti earthquake to help coordinate rescue efforts. And it's also currently used in a lot of different applications, also for you know, tracking forest fires, uh, for dealing with other environmental threats. It's really great. And then most recently, I uh, visited Guatemala on a media tour with the Rainforest Alliance. Uh, they invited me to come along to see what they're do the work they're doing uh, with Forest Stewardship Council uh, to develop sustainable forestry with local communities. And that was a really interesting experience. I was out in the middle of these jungles that I, I don't think you know someone from the United States would normally go. We had to drive for hours on bumpy roads to get to these areas. And you're really seeing the power of sustainable commerce in action. So essentially, uh, FSE develops a label which they apply to different products that enter the United States. Uh, in this particular area, they were focused on wood like mahogany, things like that, more, more of uh, those types of goods. And there's such a demand for sustainably sourced wood now that it's actually creating a huge economic opportunity for these local communities who have been uh, awarded concessions by the local by, by the central government to manage the forest on their own and they're actually doing a better job than big companies were because you know they're going they're living there this is their home so they don't want a clear cut they want to they want this they want this to be their cash cow forever and not just a you know one and done it right i've already spent too much time talking about travel so essentially like, the the moral of the story is we face global challenges. You need to travel. And you know, I know not everyone can afford to travel all the time. Uh, but honestly, I'm in the school of travel for, mo for most people, I'd say, is a choice. Uh, I know people that have very little money and they still find ways to travel. Uh, you know, maybe they don't buy an expensive car. Maybe they don't, you know, they, they, spend their, they save their money for trips. It might, might not be able to do it every year, but 
I think that people that really want to understand the world and help the world need to get out of their comfort zone. And I'm not talking about going to lay on a beach in Mexico. I'm saying go, you know, go see the world how it truly is and you know, meet the people there and talk to them and learn about them. And that's how you're going to make a difference. And, you know, when you, if you can't read about it, read about the world, being a citizen of the world isn't just about traveling. It's about just viewing yourself as a, as a human being on planet earth. And, and, and that's, the, that's your number one uh, loyalty. Fourth lesson uh, is something that's also more conventional advice. It's uh, embra embracing mentors and professional networks. Uh, for me, this has been huge. I've been very lucky throughout my career so far to come across a variety of mentors in different, different capacities that have really guided me and helped me along. Um, I'm not going to name any names because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I, I don't know where I'd be today if it weren't for some of these, some of these people. And honestly, it makes me want to someday hope that I can be a mentor to someone else. And I'm also hoping part of this article, you know, maybe someone can reach out to me if they're having, you know, career struggles and I'm be more than happy to help them with any capacity that I can. Kate Hanley, uh, she's program manager EDF Climate Corps. I talked to her and she talked, she concurred about how mentors have been really helpful in her career. Uh, you know, she says a young professional starting a career in an ever-changing field of sustainability mentorship is crucial in navigating new and sometimes scary challenges. And sustainability requires so much innovation, creativity, and risk-taking and having a strong support system that it can make a huge difference and make it much easier. And I, I personally was a EDF Climate Corps fellow last summer at PG&E. And uh, that was one of the one of the better experiences I've had, and uh, you know I really think that it it, it helps me develop skills that are, that are going to be useful in my future career. And not only that, just finding a network of other aspiring corporate sustainability professionals really makes you feel uh, empowered and 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 to stay on track. You know when you when you come across you know, difficulties, which brings me up to my last lesson, which is failure is the key to success. I could write a whole novel about how many times I've failed, uh, you know, trying to find my way in corporate sustainability. But honestly, I'm proud of my failures. I think that, you know, you study anyone who, who we deem as successful throughout history, and they're people who tried the most and failed the most. And the big difference is that they saw that as a as a prerequisite for succeeding. You know, if you're if you're not failing, that means that you're not trying. And if you don't try, you're never going to succeed, right? So, you know, uh, right out of you know, right out of grad school, uh, you know, a couple months ago, I was really fired up. I, you know, I I, saw, I, I felt that my resume was as good as it was ever going to be. You know, I had a master's in a good field from a good school. And uh, I managed to actually land a, an interview at a company, which I'm not going to name, uh, that I was really excited about. And it was an actual corporate sustainability job with you know, corporate sustainability in the title. And I thought I, you know, I thought I had a really good, good uh, chance of getting this because I had, you know, very good internal references, external references, uh, the whole shebang. And uh, I even, I, I spent days preparing for, for this interview. And, uh, I, I felt that it went well. And then, uh, you know, like this happens a lot when you're looking for jobs, they didn't get back to me for a couple of weeks and then gave me a short email saying, you know, not really telling me why I didn't get it. And it was kind of a, kind of a big letdown. Cause you know, I, I, again, I, I kind of built, this is another thing that I didn't really include in the piece, but you should never, you should never put a, a position on a pedestal because there's, there's always going to be a, you know, a better fit, uh, if you don't get the one that you wanted. And so, you know, I spent the last, some, this past, you know, three, two, three months dealing with a lot of job interviews. People say no to me a lot. I, I you know, get to the point where you're like, okay, why not? Why, why didn't you just pick me? Is it just a flip of the coin? And, you know, you just got to move on. 
And but at the same time, it was really interesting. Uh, it's like all of a sudden, uh, all of my my years of of writing hundreds of stories in this field, people are starting to take me seriously, I guess, in, in other ways. And it's kind of nice knowing that you know you get to a point where people value what's in your brain and they want to pay you for it with you know with real money, which is awesome. And uh, and you know in the long run, it worked out. Edelman's business and social purpose team offered me a, a great role on their team. Really, uh, this is basically what I was looking for. It's 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 one of those things where I didn't even know this position existed. And it it came my way. And that's another thing. I think that if you work hard and if you stay the course, uh, good things tend to come your way. And not, not that you, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm lucky as I do feel like I'm lucky, but I think that luck is also a, a result of hard work. And the harder you work, the more opportunities to have good luck that you'll have. As I move forward in my sustainability career, I know that I'm not going to forget how difficult it was to, to make it this far. And, and I really hope that we can, as a, as a emerging field, can come together and really start thinking about this. Because if we want our field to be sustainable, we have to make it sustainable for, pe- for the best and the brightest coming out of school to find positions. And uh, I, I think that's something that I'd really like to get more involved in down the road is, you know, how can we create men- you know, increasing mentorship programs? How can we create a model within this industry that that gives more paths out of school for people that want to work in the sustainable business world? What's going on at GreenBiz this week? Well, it's going to be Verge for the next few weeks. Uh, Verge uh, starts uh, on September 20th, so that's a week after next. And uh, if you're not registered to come, well, too bad. You're going to miss a great, great three, actually four-day event. But if you're not coming, you can still watch all of the main stage events uh, on Verge Virtual. You can find it by going to greenbiz.com slash verge16 and clicking on the link called Virtual Event. It's in the upper right-hand corner. Of course, if you still want to register to come, there is another link to do that as well. Yeah, that virtual event is great. I've been lucky to be a part of it the last couple of years, and we'll be fielding questions from the online audience for those who can't be there with us in Silicon Valley. Um, so you can ask questions to main stage speakers like David Crane and lots of others, um, and then also engage with other virtual attendees. There's a good chat interface. We'll be sharing links to relevant articles. It's lots of great information, and it's free. So why would you not sign up? Oh, free. My name's- we buried the lead there. That's important to know. So this week we had a new installment in a series we like to call the Green Biz Interview, where our senior writer Barbara Grady caught up with Cargill's Jill Coling on the Midwest Row Crop Collaborative. And Barbara is here with us now. And the first thing I'd like to know is what is the Midwest Row Crop Collaborative? Well, the 
Midwest Row Crop Collaborative was announced last week by a bunch of really big food and agriculture companies and some NGOs. And the point is to support sustainable farming practices in the upper Midwest region where corn and soybeans and wheat are grown. So these big companies and NGOs are putting their support through their names and some expertise and some financing behind farmers' efforts in such things as reduced tillage of fields and using cover crops, different practices that would reduce the need for so much fertilizer, and efforts to conserve water through using precision ag tools to measure where water is needed and so on. There are some very specific environmental problems in the upper Midwest region of the Mississippi River Basin, and that's what they're trying to address. Got it. And who are we talking about here? Who are the members? Yeah, so there are six big companies, Cargill, General Mills, Kellogg, Monsanto, PepsiCo, and Walmart, and then three NGOs, the Nature Conservancy, the Environmental Defense Fund, and the World Wildlife Fund. Mm, that's a, a pretty eclectic group, Monsanto and the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, but so what is the, the goal here in terms of what they're ultimately hoping to accomplish? Part of what they're doing is backing initiatives that have already started by the Soil Health Partnership and the Gulf Hypoxia Tax Force and some other groups that are trying to address the nitrogen runoff into the streams and so on that feed the Mississippi River. The fertilizer runoff? Yeah. Yeah. The fertilizer runoff is apparently creating uh, massive problems downstream, particularly in the Gulf of Mexico. There's a big kind of dead zone where nothing, where fish life essentially dies every year for a couple months because of all of the, you know, the nitrogen and phosphorus levels from runoff. Mm -hmm. In my past but, level, I, I covered the algae blooms in Ohio that were also a result of the same thing. So definitely mm -hmm. not an isolated issue. Uh, I'm right. curious though. I right. see, yeah. And I saw you, you actually spoke to, to the woman who's very involved with this. Yes. I spoke with Jill Coling, who is Cargill Senior Director of Sustainability. And she's also the co-chair of the Midwest Row Crop Collaborative. She kind of announced it last week too at a, at a big farm trade show. So I asked her some of the specific goals here, and this is what she said. So we'll be working together, initially focused in three states, Illinois, Iowa, and Nebraska. And it's there we'll be focusing and really working to optimize soil health practices and outcomes, reduce nutrient runoff into the rivers and streams of the Mississippi River Basin, maximize water conservation to reduce pressure on the Ogallala Aquifer, and then also reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And then we've got some specific goals that are really, um, we've aligned with the Gulf Hypoxia Task Force um, that are ambitious, but we feel like, you know, with the organizations we have involved, we'll be able to move things, um, to scale things, to, to work toward those goals. You know, one of the kind of strategies we're sort of employing is We've committed to raise $4 million over five years to support the National Corn Growers Association's Soil Health Partnership. And so this is a conservation program set up by farmers where they enroll farmers to um, try different techniques and gather data um, so that they can understand better what conservation practices work where and what's both the environmental and economic benefit 
is of these conservation practices. So we're helping fund their work to expand the number of demonstration farms within our three states where we're focusing initially and help farmers learn, you know, from other farmers and from crop advisors and their trusted advisors what conservation practices might make sense for them, right? Because at the end of the day, a farmer's got to understand the business case, right, for what they're doing, right. and not everything makes sense everywhere. For example, you know, planting cover crops is a great way to reduce runoff, but it may not make sense everywhere from an economic standpoint, but it may make a lot of sense. Some places might help with yields as well. And so building those business cases and building that information um, will be really helpful to farmers. And then we know there's also farmers doing a lot of great things. So there's a lot of good work that's already being done as well. The idea is, is we will be, you know, the research, the data gathering, the tools that we may be putting together as part of this collaborative, we're going to make available to everyone. So, and we're also working closely with Field to Market, an organization that's got, I don't know, maybe a hundred members today of all different types of companies and grower groups, and really helping share that knowledge with the Field to Market audience as well, so that mm -hmm. everyone has the opportunity to, to learn from this, right? So it's not really specifically tied to our supply chains and dryers, although between the six companies, we have a lot of assets, you know, and a lot of business happening in the states we're focusing in, but we're really looking to share this with the industry. So we're talking about big players in the food industry. These aren't like small suppliers or regional farms. Um, what do you think the significance is of having these, these very big and recognizable companies getting involved with this collaborative? Well, for one thing, I thought that made the collaborative newsworthy because we're talking really big players that pretty much cover the whole spectrum of the food and ag industry, you know, packaged food industry. But I asked Colling what significance is or why the collaborative made such an effort to include such a large group of companies and NGOs. Well, one part that's really unique is kind of how we represent, you know, different places in the supply chain, right? So I think we're able to um, bring a perspective that a lot of other, you know, initiatives maybe not may not have that full end-to-end -end supply chain influence and expertise behind it. So we're able to work together, like I said, companies of this size being able to amplify and really scale work that's going on with financial resources, with expertise. So with the marketing expertise that we have, having consumer packaged good companies and Walmart as a retailer involved, we can also through the collaborative help better tell the story of farmers and the things they're already doing for consumers. So, you know, we see more and more consumers want to know where their food came from and what the on-farm practices were, be it row crop agriculture or animal agriculture. And so we see the collaborative as a, a way to better connect consumers and farmers to help them understand that work. Mm -hmm. And then we also see it as a way of being able to support farmers with the resources they need. So one thing I'm curious about with this, Barbara, what do we know about uh, the amount of money that these companies are putting into this or sort of what's next for this effort? Those are good questions. And the details of that were not 
forthcoming so much, except for one thing. They've committed $4 million to the Soil Health Partnership, but that's like practically pocket change for these guys because it's $4 million over five years, and these are gigantic companies. I think that they are perhaps purposefully moving lightly and kind of slow, not getting too – they're not putting a lot of um, big money or anything behind this. It's more about – lending the support of their names to the idea of sustainable farming, that they are saying to farmers, you know, we have your back, essentially, if you are going to engage in sustainable farming practices that will help preserve soil and keep the water in better quality and address these in various environmental efforts. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned to see how this evolves. But senior writer Barbara Grady, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. That's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find links to the organization's stories and events and the Verge live stream that we mentioned in this episode. Thanks as always to our podcast director, Soraya Melconian. Contact us by email with your ideas, thoughts, leads, and whatever. With just email to 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, for all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.